All right, well, Ben did me the extreme disservice of uh, building this up, but fortunately, Ben is gonna provide the entertainment. He's the one to put the pressure on us. Uh, he's gonna have to follow on uh, from that very uh, insightful and entertaining panel he just led. Um, so one of the things we did learn from the prior panel uh, from the esteemed Mr. Bugby is that none of these gentlemen lies. So um, we can take what they say at uh, absolute face value and that they will undoubtedly be correct in their prognostications. Uh, here we are, last two gentlemen, thank you. Otis and James are here. Um, so what we've decided to do for today's panel, uh, and we do recognize that we are all that separates you from the adult beverage of your choice, we will uh, you know, move expeditiously through these topics, but we wanted to start first and have the guys tell us what their best picks were and what their worst picks were and tell us sort of uh, where they got it right and where they got it wrong and see, first of all, what we might be able to learn from that. So um, why don't we start with, uh, well, we'll just go right across. John, you want to lead off? Sure, thanks, Ted. And I think uh, as an analyst, uh, we all like to think we're never wrong. <laughs> so um, we'll take that. But as, we, if, as uh, we look back towards, I guess, towards the summer, we saw dry bulk rates come off significantly from the April highs, and we saw sentiment follow the dry bulk market, um, basically overselling to a point where if you looked at the steel value chain, you had steel margins at the mills uh, remaining at all-time highs. You had production levels remaining at significantly elevated levels, and then you had that incentivizing um, more demand towards the iron ore and coal, sorry, iron ore and coal uh, um, segments, particularly in China. Uh, so as a top, I guess, pick over the last three months has been dry bulk and has been playing the basically momentum moves uh, that investors have made in the segment. Um, now, straight into worst. Sure, one just So your, be uh, your best pick was dry, dry bulk, and long, and your worst pick? Worst pick within dry bulk. Uh, or whatever you want. Or, yeah. Whatever, any sector, but. Any sector? Um, I would say uh, particularly LPG. Ooh, wow. And that's been just on a ba uh, basic factor uh, that we have seen the market itself go through primarily, again, all-time lows, and we're starting to see sentiment turn within the market, irrespective of the fact that rates are remaining uh, through or OPEX levels or below OPEX levels at around $13,000 a day. We're still seeing now um, investors take a more longer-term view on the sector. Okay, and, uh, okay, well, uh, that's helpful. Uh, Gautam? Yeah, so I think our most accurate pick, um, I think, first of all, dry bulk is something we were bullish on since uh, sort of middle of last year, but I think we did not estimate the extent to which the market would go up, and it surprised us to the upside. But what we were correct on in terms of accuracy was probably the crude oil tanker market. We cover five crude oil stocks over here in the U.S., and um, so in the second quarter of last year, we uh, downgraded most of these stocks to neutral, and then in, we followed that up in uh, January. We downgraded them to uh, unattractive. And so I would say within stocks, um, you know, uh, if we look at most of the stocks, we were, we were pretty sort of dead on in terms of what we thought the stock prices would be. So for instance, I think TK tankers, we. In January, we, when the stock was 2.4, we had a target price of 1.8, which is something it hits in June of this year. So that's, um, yeah, I, 
uh, in terms of accuracy. Now, it, what we were wrong in is probably Golar, um, also generally the LNG sector. We were expecting perhaps for that sector to perform better than it has. Um, and again, I think in particular a stock like Golar, uh, you know, we're still very bullish about the long-term prospects of that company, particularly with its FLNG business. Uh, but there have been delays which are widely known and that's, uh, that's affected the stock price. So we had, uh, the stock didn't really work out uh, the way we were expecting. Thank you. Uh, James, go ahead. Uh, so sector-wise, I guess uh, the best pick was dry bulk. Uh, we're very bullish. We still feel bullish. We think we're at the start of a sustained recovery moving into 18 with mid-cycle rates in 19. Um, it's playing out nicely. Hopefully it stays. Uh, the worst pick we've had was, I guess, you know, the biggest miss was uh, the tanker recovery to, to occur at the end of this year. Uh, we were a little bullish, I believe, on the scrapping potential uh, in this year ahead of the IMO regulations. Scrapping has picked up in the tanker space, but not to the extent that we expected. And with the regulations being pushed out to 19, we don't feel that a recovery is going to take place until 19. So that was our miss. Um, on the equity side, our, our best pick is on the tanker side. We, we were short on Nordic, uh, initiated at nine with a $7 target. We've been steadily lowering our price targets to five. Um, I think it's now around 550, but it flirted with the four, so I think that's been our best stock pick. And the worst stock pick was probably, I would have to say Dynagas. Um, I think we were a little bullish on this short-term spot earnings potential of Dynagas. Um, you know, rates have not recovered as much. And when you have an Arctic trading vessel trading on a spot market with not enough cargoes, the rates are going to be low. So those are our picks. Otis? Yeah, I think that uh, your question, uh, the answer to your question depends on the time horizon that each investor has. Uh, what I noticed, uh, we had a trip to do a field trip to Europe uh, last week, and uh, we met with around uh, 60, 70 companies. And uh, when you were asking the public uh, companies, they were all bullish for dry bulk. They were all frozen about uh, tankers. None of the tanker companies wanted to buy any assets. But when you were asking the, the private companies that they had uh, liquidity and cash, they will tell you it's time to buy uh, crude. Uh, asset prices are uh, very low. Uh, order book, yes, it's very heavy for uh, next year. It was uh, heavy last year. But if you are looking for 2019 and 20, uh, crude tankers uh, offer a unique opportunity. And I would say uh, something similar for LPG. Uh, the problem Good is answer. that you, you need to have horizon. And uh, I think for uh, these uh, bets, uh, both for crude tanker bet an LPG bet, you need to have balance sheet. Uh, so I would think that uh, it might be a little bit early, but it would be interesting to, to look at companies with uh, like a Euronav, uh, like a, uh, DHT, companies that they have okay. strong balances that they can go through the current uh, weakness. Uh, the dry bulk market, in my view, is uh, uh, going to be great for uh, the next 12 months. Uh, of course, uh, China, the last uh, few days, uh, has uh, given some signs of uh, concern uh, in terms of tightening of, uh, of the, from uh, the government. But I think that the supply picture is very strong, and we still haven't seen the Brazilian exports uh, coming. But this is uh, more of a trade for the next uh, nine uh, months, uh, probably 12, uh, to, to, it's near its uh, mm -hmm. highest uh, point. Uh, 
Uh, if I had to say uh, to, to pinpoint on one stock for the next uh, three months, I would focus on Golar. Uh, the vessel uh, sailed uh, uh, off coast of uh, uh, the, the, the Healy FLNG sailed off course of uh, Singapore, and uh, by the end of October will start uh, will be in uh, uh, Cameroon, and uh, by November it will be generating uh, cash. I think this is a very interesting stock. Okay, that was uh, an excellent uh, prospective look, which we'll come to. So we're going to come back to you because we're asking how you, w what you picked about uh, whatever six or twelve months ago that panned out right and panned out wrong. Oh, so we'll come back to we'll come back to you. Half of what I uh, pick is uh, goes well. Half the other. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to explore why, or is that just you flip a coin and that's how things work out? Uh, all right, Ben. So we expect some entertaining remarks out of you, aside from just answering the question. Well. Um, first of all, Spiros just pointed out that he has to read a statement from his compliance officer. I probably should too, so just whatever he reads, substitute steeple for UBS and, and you've been notified. Um, away from that, the, my, probably from a worst pick, unfortunately, it's probably the product tanker stocks. Uh, I, I, came in with an awful lot of conviction and was awfully wrong with all, with a, only one exception. The only one that's up in the last 12 months is Ardmore, but all the rest of them have not worked at all. Um, and, and despite my having just been on that panel, but um, I, I would say the, the one that I'm probably the most proud of or the luckiest on perhaps, uh, it just has happened in the last six weeks or so, uh, I, I upgraded the shares of one that probably didn't come up at all today, but Madsen at $22. And Jones Act doesn't count, try again. Jones Act container trade. Shares fell on one particular day pretty sharply, fell to about $22. I called as many people as I could possibly think of uh, to try to get some insights and spoke to really all the, all the people in a position of power in every company uh, and decided that some of the fear that was in the market was far too overblown and that nobody had any um, nobody had any desire to do anything uh, irrational whatsoever so I was like well here's a good opportunity for mispriced stock uh, in the last six weeks it's up about 35 percent so yeah, sorry, as, uh, as Ben mentioned, I'm going to have to unfortunately read this statement, so just bear with me. It's quick. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't choking, folks. No, no. Yeah, feel free to sue these guys, though, when it happens. Uh, so as a research analyst, I'm required to provide certain disclosures relating to the nature of my own relationship and that of UBS with any company on which I expressed a view at the conference today. These disclosures are available at www.ubs.com forward slash disclosures. <laughs> I swear there's no viruses there. You can click that link. Alternatively, please reach out to me, and I can provide you with them after the call, so, or after the conference. Uh, all right. Well done. Yeah, so, yeah, apparently investment banks don't like getting sued. It's a surprise. Um, so, best call. Uh, I, had, I heard TK Tankers before. That was ours as well. Um, we basically ended up downgrading those guys to sell um, when they were trading around 270 main driver, we just really didn't like Suez Maxes at the time. Um, a lot of what we saw happening was dislocation in Suez Max rates relative to VLCCs. Historically, they would trade in line 80%, call it on the rates, and that had really been declining down towards 50%. And 
Obviously, TK Tankers uh, has a lot of Suez Max exposure, especially after the principal maritime transaction, something we really just couldn't get behind. So put a price target on those guys of about $1.75 at the time. After they did the TIL transaction, uh, we doubled down on the sell, cut the price target down to about $1.50. It ended up continuing to trade down. So all in, we, we thought we did pretty well on that call. Um, unfortunately, we're getting into the uh, the one that we don't like, which is where did we mess up? To the uh, to, to much happiness, I'm sure, to, to Mr. Bugby, it is one of his stocks. And so going short on salt uh, ended up ripping my face off. So a uh, little, little thing happened here in the U.S. in November called the, uh, you know, the U.S. election. And uh, anything that was a little bit risky was just uh, off to the races after that. I'm not just going to blame that. Obviously, the BDI and uh, Cape size rates were off to the races, too. So um, we ended up missing that call. Those names really rebounded. Um, you know, we, we're, we're too late on this first leg, uh, but we're sticking with the sell at this point. So not, not giving up yet. All right, very good. Um, Fotis, you want to add anything or you just said about half are good and half aren't so good? We'll stick with that. No, if you want something more specific, I think that uh, the best call and the worst call was, uh, I think, TK for me. TK? Uh, I would say both uh, at the same time. I think I caught it right that the uh, TK offshore was uh, pretty much at the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, I didn't expect that uh, Brookfield will come and uh, bail out uh, both the bondholders and uh, primarily the equity holders uh, at this kind of valuation, which created a short squeeze and a jump of uh, the TK parent uh, stock. Uh, so I, I, I think that, and uh, I would also add uh, uh, C-SPAN. Uh, I think I was correct on uh, go initiating underweight at the beginning of the year of the stock. Uh, I just thought that it will drop much further than uh, it did. Uh, the recovery of the, or the improvement of the uh, containership market since uh, February, it has helped the stock uh, uh, rebound and uh, not to reach the lows that I thought it would. Okay, that's helpful. So uh, three of you guys, your best call was a short, either a sector or a, or a specific name. Um, you know, there were obviously a couple of, you know, long sector calls, although John, if I remember our discussion separately, you called dry right, but you called, you called Eagle Bulk wrong within that, um, your own uh, admission. So, uh, you know, What's harder to call, guys, a good long or a good short? Don't all jump at once. Um, ben, go ahead. Oh, that's easy. It's, it's much harder to call a short uh, because you really, you really have to put yourself out there um, in that uh, this might be hard to believe, but people don't like to be told that their stock is garbage. Uh, and it, I can, it, it can ruin relationships, it can uh, irreparably crush investment banking business, and as much as we all are dislocated from that, we all work for investment banks. So it takes some real guts to go out with a, with a hard short call. Uh, so, you know, okay. I, I think that impacts the natural biases. I agree with the pressure that sometimes you get uh, for uh, having an underweight, uh, but I think it's much easier to, in the shipping space uh, to have a high degree of confidence on a short. And the reason is that there is a clear catalyst and usually is a broken balance sheet. 
uh, while uh, along uh, the, the, the problem is that you hope that the market uh, will get better and you do not know if uh, LPG market will get better in 2018 or it's going to be in 2020 or in 2022. Uh, I mean, uh, you hope, you have a view, but your degree of confidence is uh, not that uh, strong. But when you have a broken balance sheet, uh, sometimes even if the market recovers, you know that this company is a short. You know that uh, you know, I'm still underweight on uh, C-SPAN, although I have been, uh, the last few months I have been wrong because uh, simply we know what the cash flows of the companies are. They need to raise equity. I was go back to what Ben said. I mean, it really, really comes down to risk reward, right? If, if you're gonna be, if you're gonna go out and stick your neck out there on a sell call, you better be really sure you're gonna be right. Um, there's a whole lot of downside in it. And a whole lot of upside too. If you make a really great sell call, you stick out of the crowd. There's obviously more buys on the street, typically speaking, than sell ratings. Um, and so, good opportunity to stick out and and set you know set yourself apart from the crowd. But at the end of the day, you better be right at the end of it. So high risk, high reward. I can basically the, excuse me the way I look at it. Okay. So turning to you know, it seems a big part of your guys' job is making the right sector calls. Um, you know, I think it'd be helpful for everybody to hear, you know, what you look at. You can choose a sector because I know they're all, you know, I mean, look, I'm sure you look at order books and, you know, charter coverage and all those sorts of things. But um, be good if people would just give a primer. You can choose any sector you want. Uh, let's try not to repeat each other. But give us the top three, uh, three to five items that you look at in making a sector call. Um, let's see. We'll start one over. Gautam, you can start. Yep. Okay. Um, so... When we're making a sector call, I guess, uh, Drury, we've got macro research, so we are driven um, very much by what our macro guys tell us. Uh, but yeah, depending on whether they're bullish or, or bearish on a stock, we, we either, uh, you know, that is a big weightage factor. Uh, we also look at what I would call risk of bankruptcy. So we like to back companies which have a, um, you know, a, a strong degree of longevity. So we look at companies, we look at the charter coverage, we look at the break even of the vessels. Um, we look at uh, the dividend policy of the company, historical dividend policy. We look at the sponsor's shareholding in the company uh, to assess how aligned the sponsors are with the other, other common shareholders. Uh, and then finally, of course, we look at also the, the independence of the board. Okay. James? Well, so when we do a sector analysis, we start from bottoms up as granular as, as we can and then work our way up. Um, like on the dry bulk side, we'll start with each individual commodity um, broken up by sectors. So, you know, grains, coal, rice, you know, we'll go as granularly as we can. And we look at what the demand growth will be, um, project that out, and then we'll look at where the exporting regions are and where the importing regions are, and that'll tell us our tamal demand growth. And based on that, we'll roll that up into the vessel classes and vessel speed for the fleet. Um, the current fleet growth and the order book, uh, including scrap, uh, scrapping and slippage, forecast that out about two to three years. And whatever number that gives us in terms of a supply demand on the tonnage, that's what our sector call will be. Okay. Otis, anything you want to, or has it all been said? I, I don't think I, we can, uh, I can add something more intelligent than what we have already okay. said. We all, obviously, we look at the order book and uh, we need to know if, uh, how many ships they are coming, uh, and uh, then certain catalysts in uh, each particular uh, sector. For example, uh, will the Arabs uh, 
for LPG will uh, open uh, next year is uh, are the prices uh, for oil, the price of oil is going to uh, make more attractive uh, LPG versus uh, naphtha uh, these kind of things are brazilian uh, iron ore exports uh, are going to expand the, the, the ton mile and we're going to see an unusual uh, or uh, be, uh, an unusual increase in uh, demand beyond uh, beyond the regular trend. Okay. Well, so it sounds like generally you guys are all agreed on your sector outlooks. So I guess we should presume you all are looking at the same facts and should have very similar views on the sector. So uh, hands up, uh, dry bulk uh, long, bullish for the next 12 months. Ah. Next 12 months. Yes. Okay, good. We have something to talk about. Uh, 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 Spiro or Ben, lead off. Tell us why you're not. Yeah, I mean, next 12 months is, I guess it's pretty narrow, but generally speaking, I think everyone feels pretty good about the supply side, which to your point is something that we're all, you know, it's very visible and right in front of us. We can see the order book. We can see that data. I guess what's less apparent is is the demand side, right? And I think when we talk to our metals and mining team, um, we look at the fundamentals for coal, the fundamentals for iron ore. Uh, it, it's just not playing out, or it doesn't seem to be playing out that well over the next few years. And so we're actually forecasting negative CAGR growth for both of those commodities from a trading standpoint over the next five years. And I think if that's the case, you can do what you want with the supply side. If your demand is falling, and even if your supply is growing by 1%, that's still bad. I'm a little bit less draconian than that. <laughs> uh, but what I would say, though, is what, what really bothers me about the dry bulk side is I, I, I do think that you are facing some level of structural demand growth. And while it's okay at the moment in terms of iron ore trade and, and coal is even all right, uh, I, I think we're probably, incremental growth is probably about as good as it's going to get. And already we've seen, even though the rates on the ships are better but still not good, there's been a, remark, a, a marked change in activity from the supply side. A lot less scrapping, a lot more ship ordering. Uh, what that means is if your demand is a relatively thin margin, uh, it takes a relatively thin margin of supply response to offset it. And, and I think that lends itself to uh, uh, a less volatile cyclical recovery, and frankly, probably not a whole heck of a lot better than where we are right now. And while the supply side's low, and I don't think it's gonna get worse, uh, I think if asset values appreciate by 5% or 10%, you have a little bit of upside in your shares, but not a lot of upside. And I think there's some anticipation that things are really gonna go gangbusters, but if dry bulk demand grows by 2%, it's, it's hard to go gangbusters. John Gandolfo, you want to chime in on the uh, the bull side? Yeah, so I um, I disagree a little bit. I, if, if we look towards purely on the fundamentals for steel making margins that we've had, we've seen the reinvestment um, take place in the iron ore and coal side on the mining side of the business. Yes, we've seen some orders come back into the dry bulk market, but it's still as a percentage of the overall order uh, the overall fleet itself, it's still relatively at uh, significant lows historically. So I think that, yes, we might see, at least within on the shorter period going into the winter heating season in China, some environmental regulations basically weigh on the market overall. But I think the trajectory is still towards more improving markets, uh, especially over the next 12 months. I think, I think that's going to definitely uh, play itself out. James, you want to go? 
Yeah, so if we're, if we're talking 12 months, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of positive sentiment. Um, and, you know, there's one wild card people aren't talking about is, is, the, is the current VLOX that Polaris is operating. Um, the Stellar Daisy sank, you know, it capsized, and the Korean Register is supposedly doing some investigations to make sure that, you know, these vessels are seaworthy. Um, there have been new orders placed for replacement VLOX. But in the interim, within 12 months, there could be a chance that a number of these vessels are taking out of the market, and Valet will need to tender COAs, and they will have to go on CAPES. There aren't VLOCs out there for these tenders, so that should help with short-term fundamentals. Um, and longer term, I mean, if you look at what China is doing, um, it's, it's a little different. You know, the, the latest five-year plan, they're calling for, like, for targeted infrastructure spending. Instead of those ghost cities they're building in Western China, they're building out existing from within existing cities like the Pearl River Delta, um, and that's attracting new workers. And that ties in directly with what they're doing on the economic side, which is moving from agrarian to a services-oriented industry. So with the move to a services-oriented industry, you, you're going to have a larger middle class. Two things a larger middle class does: they drive more and they eat more meat. The Chinese, they will need to so they need will need to import a lot more soy and grains, uh, soy for, for animal feed and grains aside from rice to feed the growing population. Um, I think with those fundamentals there, uh, and as far as mentioned, the S11D mine that's still not operational fully. We have a Samarco restart coming on. These projects will go ahead, and that supply has to go somewhere. So, Valet is not going to mine and keep it piled up in, in Tuber or, or on a port somewhere, these will find destinations in long-haul trades, be it in Northern Europe, where the steelmaking industry is doing better, or in, uh, or in China. Um, I think with the Chinese steel mills, they are pulling in more higher-grade iron ore. Uh, you want something with 65 to 67% FE content, which is what you find in Brazil. And just a ton mile difference between there and Australia, I think that's going to have a positive effect. What's the biggest risk to that thesis, out of curiosity? Oversupply. <laughs> I can in the see near it in 12 months? Well, I can see, well, that's another thing. So, you know, the Chinese have been pretty, the Chinese have been pretty bullish on their steelmaking capabilities, right? They have been pushing for Chinese-built vessels. I could see a time, a point in time, where the Chinese have more aggressive financing. Um, they will give Sino short cover, so you can have a lower cost of debt. And ship owners might go and order vessels. I mean, you don't need to go to South Korea or Japan to build a Cape or a Panamax. You can go to China and get a high-quality one. So that's probably the overhang there. Okay. And I, I would say the other uh, big risk that is there for this market is uh, overheating of the property market in China and perhaps a reversal of where we are. I think last year you had most uh, cities in China having uh, appreciation in property prices, and this could very well reverse. And that we don't really know what effect it will have. Um, but that could be negative. Well, I mean, the Chinese have the monetary controls, right? They're, they're trying to keep money in China, and these investors need to invest it. They can't go to the U.S., buy apartments on Fifth Avenue anymore. They have to invest within China. Um, and I think that's going to help spur additional growth in China for the next maybe two to three years. Okay. Excellent. Uh, Fotos, you want to add something, or you said? Uh, I, I will just repeat something that a trader, a dry bulk uh, iron ore trader mentioned to me, that uh, his visibility is not more than three months. So that's the problem with the dry bulk market, that you cannot have a very long-term view. And I share uh, uh, Spiros' uh, concern long-term, what is happening after two, uh, 
uh, Valle brings all its uh, volume is st China still going to be there growing by one or two or three percent it's still production or we're going to have a market after 2019 or 20 where uh, still uh, production uh, will, will be going down but that's not a problem for uh, uh, public equity investors it's more of a problem of uh, the ship owners that they have to think uh, five years ahead or three four years ahead yeah, so let's pick up on that because, you know, I think implicit in uh, what you guys do is some correlation, some timing between what's happening in the underlying trade, specifically rates, and how that translates to a stock price, and at the same time how that translates into asset values or, or EBITDA multiples, as every CFO in this room thinks shipping companies should be valued on, right? Yes? Um, so tell us about um, how you guys... Um, you know, triangulate among your fundamental belief in trade flows and, and enhanced day rates and, uh, and stock price action and valuation. Um, let's see. Yeah, ben, you look ready to go. Oh, man. <laughs> I was hoping for somebody else to give me a good idea how to do this. Um, you know, I, I think that the, uh, the truth is that, um, honestly, my view on that is changing a bit. Um, I think, it, and that started probably in late 2014 and 2015, where all of a sudden the tanker market rates were great, asset values were screaming, and the stocks did nothing. And historically, there's been this tight correlation. But in that particular instance, we were dead wrong from our, we were, we were technically correct, but dead wrong from a stock picking perspective. And, and the vast majority of us were. And I think you can almost even say that in the last, let's call it six months of the dry bulk trade. Uh, you had a big run up in anticipation of a good market. And then finally the market began to do well, or at least better, and the stocks have been absolutely flat or even lower. Um, and, and, and I think, I think it, it's changing. I think that uh, is there's more eyeballs that are looking at this space. Uh, there is more anticipatory money that's being put to play, uh, and uh, you know, and, and I think we'll see. I think momentum is certainly the key, but uh, it is uh, it's not it's not as easy as it used to be, where you could just say supply here, demand here, stock here. It's not that way anymore. I think you you got to be a lot smarter about. Uh, thinking through what is impacting the psyche of investors. I think in 2014 and 2015, the energy prices were plummeting and people didn't want to touch anything that had anything to do with oil. And that included tankers, even though they were making more money than they had in years. Um, so, so I think th there's a l it's gotten a lot more complicated and a lot more detailed. And hopefully, that means that uh, guys like me uh, add a lot more value to people. Let me tell you two stories. Uh, one is when I first started, uh, I got involved into the shipping industry for the first time around 17 years ago. And uh, I went to the office of a prominent uh, Greek ship owner from the island of Chios. And I asked him uh, what the market is going to do. He told me the market is going to be very good. It's going to improve significantly. And I asked him why. I was... Uh, Right after business school, I was running correlations, supply-demand models, and uh, this guy was in the market for 40 years. He told me that 
I went to Australia. And when I, when I was in Australia, I was at the field and I touched the grain. So it's going to be a good year. He felt the grain. <laughs> so I said, wow, that's what it takes. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been to a lot of offices and I have heard, oh, it's my gut feeling. And uh, apparently he was right. That was uh, 2002, market started improving 2003, and then this company went public, uh, still public, uh, has done uh, phenomenally well. And I'll tell you another story when I first joined at Morgan Stanley and uh, uh, I was uh, with uh, our oil services analyst with all the slaughter, if you know it. We went to a local uh, restaurant after four bottles of wine. He told me, now you know what is the model, how to predict the, the tanker rates. Have another glass of wine. So this is the best that uh, you can do. I mean, uh, you can uh, <laughs> you, you not, can not run exactly. your models. You can run your uh, numbers. I was uh, working with a private equity a few years ago that they were trying to, to predict the, the crude tanker market. And they were asking me why the, the multiplier for GDP is 4 or the multiplier of the shipments uh, uh, of, of the production over the shipments is four and it's not 4.2. And I said, I, I do not really know. We just put a <laughs> multiplier there. It's just the direction that we are trying to, to forecast. I'm sure the good people at MSI who are a global sponsor of this event probably don't agree with you, but any event. Um, yeah, fair point. Um, who else has thoughts on that? Got anything you want to add? No, okay. So, so, so it's certainly tricky. All right, let's pick another sector. Um, we all heard uh, Ben's panel before. Um, I believe the exact quote is, you all should be buying the hell out of products. Uh, who agrees? Okay. Oh, good. We have some debate. Uh, let's start with the bull case this time. Uh, James, you get to lead off. Well, I mean, if you look on the product tanker side, um, it's the same story as dry pretty much. You have, good, you have a low order book. You have, it looks like the, there's going to be enough in the market next year to absorb this additional supply coming in. You have you know, the, China, the Chinese teapot refineries that were banned. Um, they're allowed to refine now, and they're allowed to export a certain number. And then you have the mega refineries coming out in China, one that's coming out online end of this year. Um, and that's going to help firm up the Pacific intra-Asian trade. Um, and if you look at the U.S., the U.S. is, you know, the, the share of the population is really helping. You know, you have a lot of cheaper feedstocks. Um, you're going to have a lot of U.S. exports to, you know, traditional long-haul trades and to new trades to, you know, additional trades to Mexico. You know, the Mexican refineries are not doing well. Uh, throughput's not that great. So they're going to export, they're going to import more from the U.S. Um, Latin America, another growing region. I mean, there's talk of, in the U.S. and Europe, about banning diesel and internal combustion engines and, Tesla's going to take over the world, but if you look at South America, they are still a long ways away from electric vehicles. Um, they are going to use diesel and gasoline engines. Uh, the refineries there, they don't have refineries there. They have to import that from somewhere. And I think with all that demand, it's going to help the product tanker sector. Okay, so who wants to do the, the uh, bear case? So I, I can go, but I'm not, okay. we're not really bearish. We're more neutral. Okay. Uh, and your question is for the next 12 months. Uh, sure. I think longer term, we see we're more optimistic. Uh, in the shorter term, I think there's the order book overhang. A lot of vessels got delivered recently, and I think that's creating pressure on rates. 
longer term, as, as he says, I think, first of all, um, you know, the intra-Asia trade on MRs, we expect to improve. Uh, also, there's new refineries coming up in the Middle East, so that'll help the, uh, the LRs. Okay. Just to add one thing that uh, the product anchor market, uh, it looks like an interesting trade for a stock for the next six months because order book next year is extremely low, so, and the stocks are uh, very depressed. So it's a small improvement. It can have a huge uh, upside. Uh, for a long-term uh, investment, the problem is with the product anchor market. Since I started in shipping, I've been hearing about this dislocation of refineries that has uh, never materialized and the great opportunity of the product tankers uh, that is coming, but uh, it's been 17 years, and uh, I'm sure that other people are uh, much longer uh, here than uh, I am, and they are still waiting the product tanker market to, to be booming. Uh, one of the points that, uh, the, the difficulties with the product tanker call is that asset prices have not collapsed. You still have 32, 33 million dollars uh, MR prices, they, they are not expensive, but they are not particularly cheap to say it's easy to buy an asset uh, today. If they were 28, 29, that would be an easy call, like uh, you can say for the next three years, buying a crew tanker uh, vessel, most likely you're not going to find it cheaper. If I could just add one thing, uh, I think Ben asked that prior panel what, what the risk is, what's the risk to that call, and I, I don't think we got a straight answer, but I mean, if I'm thinking about one big risk out there, you know, if I think about what kind of got us into this mess in the first place, think about all the oversupply of crude that we had, all the refiners were just incentivized to run as much as possible, and that created this big uh, refined product overhang that effectively meant everybody had too much of everything and nobody was trading, right? So if we get into that scenario again, where crude price suddenly sinks again, we get into the next OPEC meeting and let's, you know, March or April of next year, uh, and they say, deal's off, forget it, we're bringing production back, crude gets cheaper, refineries run harder, we're in an oversupply situation again. I feel like that's something that could maybe ruin the party or take away the recovery. <clears throat> that's helpful, thanks. Um, so, um, I guess, you know, uh, I guess the question I've been dying to ask all you guys is um, public company CFO, and there's a lot of public company managers out there. Um, you know, uh, so <clears throat> how do we all, why do we all trade at discounts to NAV, and how do you help us get out of that conundrum? Ask the regulators to take seller ratings off the table. <laughs> I think, uh, I think, I actually, I, I think, in the product tanker panel, Robert gave a pretty good answer to that. The reality is that um, typically stocks don't trade at discounts to NAV into perpetuity. And maybe there are a few of them that might. But um, but the reality is it's, it's, it's about uh, the, the stocks are more an indicator of uh, investor interest. Uh, and so at the moment, um, the reality is, I think, shipping stocks are seen as higher on the risk curve, and a lot of people are disinterested in taking really high speculative positions on really small companies uh, and aren't willing to bid them up. But you go back 10 years, and it's happened cycle after cycle, when things are really crushing it, and people are willing to sort of chase capital after uh, after this opportunity, the stocks 
traded big premiums to their nav. And, and if you do go back long enough, uh, the, the, for both dry bulk and tankers, it, it actually evens out. Most, uh, most stocks have historically traded at their nav, but never at any one time. It's just that the upside is, is most typically offset the downside. Okay. Well, um, not exactly. I was really hoping for the silver bullet, but we'll keep hoping. I think that you need to raise more money for your company and uh, start paying dividends. <laughs> that's the only way you can. <laughs> okay, mean reversion, that's the silver bullet. Mean reversion. Keep, keep raising money, paying dividends. You will always trade above NAV. You will raise even more mm. money, keep paying more dividends. <laughs> I think and everybody, so bankers will be happy. Novel idea. Sounds happy. like a tanker stock, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it works, no? It does work for a while and, until it doesn't work. Um, you don't have to renew your fleet, right? You can just operate older vessels into perpetuity? Oh, yeah, 40-year-old vessels. They <laughs> trade, in, trade in Africa somewhere, so okay. They trade the same as the same, same trade as a new build, right? <laughs> so, um, okay. You have um, young ships, so you can do it for the next 20 years, no? Yes, that's true. All right, well, good advice. So I, I didn't know you had gotten into the investment banking business, but, you know, we'll certainly, uh, certainly take that advice. Um, I'm sorry, that probably makes the UBS compliance guy who's sitting in here somewhere <laughs> extremely uncomfortable. Um, so, um, you know, I, I guess the one last um, segment I'd like to, to hit on, um, and I'm not going to ask you about LPG because unless you're bullish, I'm not going to like what you have to say anyway, so <laughs> I'm not going to ask. Um, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, but at any rate, uh, uh, let's switch it over to crude. We heard from... Uh, we heard definitively from the entire panel they're not building, therefore the outlook's pretty good. Um, <laughs> James, okay, you're already, you already let off there. Anybody, that, James is a bear, anybody else a bull here? A bull or bear? Ah, okay, John Gandolfo. I'll say I'm definitely a little bit more constructive on the crude uh, tanker space overall. Uh, back again to the fundamentals that we're looking at, asset values on secondhand ships remain significantly depressed, yet these companies are still trading at discounts to their NAV, uh, especially the companies that have enough runway to, to push through weaker rates, whether it's going to be this quarter coming up to signal a stronger period, or we're looking towards the second half of 18. Um, I think that the crew tanker space, particularly um, some of the better funded VLCC players, do have what it takes to come back into this market and basically um, deliver some significant returns on a risk-reward basis. And I think one of the things that we like to look at and we like to see is a company that within that space is trading at a significant discount to its peers, which will offer that additional upside, so to speak. If somebody is less um, bullish on the segment, they could always pair off that, that tanker risk with a different uh, trade. James? So I think... What's missing on the crude tanker space is what we saw in the dry bulk space. You know, January of last year, Cape size rate daily rates were at thousand dollars, and that and that forced a lot of ship owners to start really thinking about scrapping their vessels. And you know, we saw a lot of tonnage leave the market. Um, the tanker sector, it's kind of been in purgatory. The rates have been bad, but then they rebound a bit, and you know, it seems like the outlook looks a little rosy. And then you have a quarter of bad earnings again, and so we're kind of in this up and down space. I think what we really need is really low rates for a prolonged period of time, 
for a couple of quarters. I think that's going to really force ship owners' hands, especially guys with, especially owners with older tonnage. You know, you have CapEx requirements for special surveys coming up, along with the scrubbers and the basketball treatment systems. And with a prolonged period of low rates, you know, how many ship owners are going to burn through $12 million outfitting a 15-year-old vessel uh, when rate da daily rates are four or $5,000 a day? So I think if we have that, and that forces a lot of times to leave the market. I think, you know, I can turn bullish all right. in the cruise tanker space. All right, well, we've got about five minutes left, so this is the part you've all been waiting for, aside from Ben's Woody repartee. Um, so what is your, uh, your, best, your best idea um, for whatever time period? Just tell us what's the next three months, six months, 12 months, uh, long or short, and a you know, specific name, not a sector. Um, John? Um, sticking with the tankers, I'm going to go with International Seaways. I think they trade at a significant discount to their NAV, uh, and I don't think it's warranted, particularly with the fact that they have two really cash flow positive JVs. And you, you get the pushback that they get. They have an older fleet, but that older fleet has, through good markets, performed relatively at par um, with its peer group. So I think that's a name to, to watch out for. Okay, so the, the company we're most bullish on is Scorpio Bulkers, um, again, because it is uh, trading at the biggest discount to its NAV among the bulk of stocks that we cover. Um, we also like the fact that they have a modern fleet, uh, which is a little bit less exposed to iron ore. It's, um, it's more uh, diversified uh, cargo base. I'm going to stick with my short on uh, Nordic. Um, I think Q3 is going to be really bad. I think Q4 is going to be really bad and they're going to be forced to cut the dividend. They have CapEx requirements coming up for their new builds. They're going to have to raise money. Um, what I think they're going to do is what they did in the past when they didn't have enough adequate cash, cash to uh, pay out the dividend is probably raise more, raise, you know, more money through equity, uh, dilute the current shareholders, and pay out a dividend from that cash. Uh, I'll repeat again about Gola. I think that the the interesting uh, long uh, call right now for the next uh, three to six months is uh, Golar and uh, the production of the FLNG. On the short side, unfortunately, most of these uh, stocks, uh, they have reached a very low valuation, so it's not very easy to make a confident uh, sh short call. Fair enough. Um, I, I think the, the one that I feel like might have the most capital appreciation potential is Navigator. Uh, I think to the extent that A, you might like this, hopefully the LPG side of the business is bottoming, but, uh, but in their case, I think that they're developing a pretty big ethylene terminal to the extent that they're successful with that, it could be quite impactful for the shares. So I'm probably gonna go uh, long TK LNG partners. Uh, it's an MLP as it's in the LNG business, so I think we've got a few few LNG uh, bulls here. Uh, I think fundamentally, just first of all, LNG prime for recovery. It's already off the bottoms here, and I think as we headed into 18 and 19, it seems like the market's gonna get tighter and tighter, potentially be in an undersupply situation by 2020. And I think when you look at that name specifically, it's got catalysts outside of just the LNG market. Specifically, they have not brought back their distribution yet from when they cut it uh, about two years ago. And so I think that's a catalyst that's coming, not imminently, but maybe towards, towards the middle of 2018, I'd say, is when they start getting a little more serious about bringing that distribution back. If you think about where that distribution used to be, um, 
at a 10% yield, this could be a $28 stock. It's trading at 18 today, give or take. At a 7% yield, which is what it used to yield before the cut, that could be a $40 stock. Like I said, it's 18 today. So it seems like the upside is just asymmetric to the downside here. Um, so that's, that's going to be my pick, TGP. That was a great answer. Uh, all of them are great. Um, and uh, I've written them all down, so when we reassemble next year, we'll see how, <laughs> see how everyone did. Portfolio does. <laughs> exactly. Um, so as there's only a minute and 30 seconds between you and a drink, um, I think we'll allow you to uh, ask our panelists questions uh, as you may be able to grab them at drinks. I want to thank all of our panelists. They did a fantastic job. Round of applause for them, please.